Welcome to the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me today is Eric Whitson. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I um, want to get right into it. We start with the podcast with the question we ask all of our guests, uh, although we were just talking a little bit off air and your start to this question is a little different than most of our other guests. But tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to your position, um, your current position and your, and your current role um, and talk a little bit more about your career today. Yeah, I, I think my current, you know, how I got here, I think is probably a little bit good timing fortuitous, but um you know, was a obviously professional athlete for a long time. Uh, did the you know, high school to college, college to the NFL, was drafted in the third round uh, to the Houston Texans, ended up playing uh, 12 years in the NFL, uh, almost almost every game at right tackle. I had a weird couple of games where I started at a guard position and played a left tackle spot a couple of times, but mostly all of them at right tackle over the course of four teams and really played 10 years across uh, Houston and Cincinnati. So, you know, the, the real bulk of my career um, in, two, in two of those places. Uh, the last four years and, and really over a course of six years because I ended up not playing again after I was elected. I was uh, the NFLPA president for six years, um, which again was you know overseeing a pretty tumultuous time um, and culminating in, uh, in, in the uh, adoption of the to 2020 CBA two days after I stepped down. The NBA shut down and and COVID uh, COVID began right. I don't know if it really technically began, but that's how I always uh, mark time uh, in 2020. Was was it pre NBA shutdown or post NBA shutdown? Um, and I feel like in a weird way, you know, that's the power of sports, right? The NBA shuts down and it gives everybody else a permission structure to shut down. So um, that was. That was that, you know, while I was at the NFL PA and really even as I was a player, I was, I was, I was really interested on the business side and that's, um, uh, throughout my career, uh, whether it's the business of football, the business of sports, the licensing business at the NFL PA ran through NFL players, Inc. Um, and just, just all of those facets really just interested in it and, and studied a lot at it took a lot of, uh, just always tagged along on some of the business stuff that was going on, especially in the off season, uh, around early 2019, um, Nassar and I, uh, had an idea and, and about really aggregating all the PAs and the player rights to build a, a better mousetrap, if you will, to fully monetize, uh, player IP. And that started at one team partners, you know, it was really a, year 18 month odyssey of us going around and talking to just a ton of people and culminating in a joint venture between the mlbpa the nflpa and a, and a capital partner named redbird capital um to uh really kind of go out and monetize rights we had a great run at one team i spent almost three years there we built it uh into really a, i think a behemoth that it is still today and uh and which Aggregated, I think most of the North American sports outside of NHL and, and NBPA, which are, are two big exceptions, but NWSLPA, the WNBPA, MLSPA, um, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, you know, the, kind of the list goes on and on and doing different things for different partners. Uh, but super proud of that, super proud of the um, really just the the overall I think anytime you start a business and Adam, you know, this, you have a thesis, you, you have, you have an idea of like why this is a good idea. Um, and I was really proud of what we, we did what we said we were going to do. And we, we thought, and we felt strongly that if we aggregate these player rights in this manner, and we were able to go out and get video game experts, we're able to go out and get other licensing experts and marketing people that we could really finally fully unlock and, and maximize the value of player rights. And I would say the only thing we failed at probably there is like, I still don't think they're fully maximized. I, think, I still think there's a lot out there to go do. And I think that's really what one team's doing now. And then, and then, you know, Ahmad left, I left one team and I, I left a little bit after him, probably six, eight months, nine months after he did. And, um, and then we're kind of doing something similar at Winners Alliance. We're working with the Professional Tennis Players Association. We're working with the Federation of International Cricketers right now. And to, to maximize their rights, I do think Winners Alliance 
um, will kind of diverge from some of that models with some of the things that we're working on and that we have kind of in the background right now that we're, we're working on. We do want to not just be a licensing and marketing shop. We want to be event-based. We want to create some of our own IP. We want to do a lot of um, interesting and just really broad range things. But I, I do think licensing marketing will always be our core competency and that's what we're doing but that's how i'm here so i'm, I'm running the day-to-day -day business as the president of winners alliance um and you know i guess i, I tried to keep it under five minutes but I, I think that's uh that's how i went from drafted to the nfl all the way to uh quasi business executive i guess you would say yeah, why well, do I love about quasi? It sounds like especially actual <laughs> business executive. Uh, one thing I did want to comment on, typically, like what we try to say, or I always say, is as we'll we'll try to start from the beginning, which is always a good place to start, which is your career as an athlete. But I will say, when you talked about COVID, even though it's called COVID nineteen, obviously that's kind of when it started. It was two thousand nineteen. I marked it. We you mentioned starting a business. We marked it. We were had a deal in place or a large deal structure around the NCAA men's NCAA basketball tournament and women's basketball tournament. Wow. And, and that went away, obviously, once COVID came around. So for me, that was kind of the line of demarcation. So I have a similar experience that you had when you talked about yeah. the NBA. But yeah. um, one thing that we did, I did want to go back to is, is, again, your experience as an athlete. A lot of our audience or members of our audience are student athletes who are potentially looking to transition or some even professional athletes like yourself who, yeah. you know, want to potentially transition into career in sports. Um, so from your experience, you, you also mentioned that one of your reasons you wanted to join the NFLPA, one of the things that players talk to you about is ownership, whether that's equity ownership or just acting more like an owner in terms of the business model. So one first question is how did your playing career and your career as an athlete influence your future career? And then two, which we can get into after is, is that the mindset you kind of taken is that kind of ownership, take ownership of rights and monetization and using that as a player perspective to help better understand that kind of ownership model? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take kind of the both of those separately. One, you know, I think from a, my soft skills more than anything, I think, and, and the little stuff that I think everybody talks about when they're when they're getting into the business world, especially athletes like what kind of skill set do you have? Like, do you know insurance? Do you know modeling? Do you know like whatever? Right. And I think those are all at the end of the day, learned skills, in my opinion. And and you can go learn those skills like it might take a little longer than others, but you can go learn those skills. I actually think and, and everything's technically could be a learned skill, but I actually think the softer skills, the interpersonal communication ability that athletes tend to have, the work ethic athletes tend to have, everything um, everything that, that I think you learn as an athlete, especially once you get into like high level college, professional athletics, how to be a professional, you don't realize how well that translates because you're so fixated on, man, do I have any of these hard skills to do? To how do I how do I make it work? And it's not linear, right? Like most people's career, your average most people are, are I think have a linear career path, right? They go from being a manager to senior manager to director, you know, and on up. And that's a wonderful career. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you end up being a professional athlete and you play for 12 years, like, you know, my little brother who's two years younger than me was already a managing director at a PE firm when I got out of it. I'm sitting there like, well, I, he's put in a lot more years. He's, you know, he's already got 10, 12 years in a, in the PE shop. Then, you know, like, so how am I going to get there? Right. If like, and so you have to believe in sort of exponential growth. And I think your soft skills and I think professional athletes, soft skills provide the fuel for that exponential growth, but you have to go learn a skill. Right. You have to get, you have to decide, like, I'm going to be a rookie again and I'm going to go learn something. And it's OK that I'm not the big dog right away. But but every single guy I know, every professional athlete that I know that has embraced that concept has skyrocketed up to whatever they're doing. Because, again, working a 12 hour day isn't that big of a deal for a lot of these guys that are used to working 12 hour days and we're used to working in a lot of conditions that are a lot harder than a boardroom or an air conditioned office. Right. And, and so I always try, especially the professional athletes, I always try to harp on that 
with them of like, hey, man, just be willing to be a rookie again for one or two years and really to go learn a business and then let all those soft skills take over. And I promise you, you will start excelling because what you think is normal is not normal. And then I also tell that to a lot of college folks that I am um, that I, I talk to, whether I interview them, whether I'm mentoring them, whatever, is that you still have built up a lot of great. You, you know, the, the, the ability to be coached and be coached hard is, is not something that I think is innately human. And so when you have a college athlete that has gotten screamed at and has gotten, you know, like you, you've, you've, you've put your body through some tough times, there's a certain level of, 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 you know, nothing really faces me and that like that translates really well. And then it's a matter of like, okay, well, what industry, what skill do you want to learn? I weirdly always tell people, and I, I didn't do any of these three. Well, I did one of these three things, but I, I, I said, you know, you need to be, I didn't do any of these three things, but I did go to MBA school. I guess I left that out. I went to Wharton after I got done playing as well. But I always tell people, no matter what, I was like, you should go either get a law degree, either be an investment banker or be a consultant for two years. Like you don't have to like go do those jobs forever, but those skill set, like the ability to um, just analyze problems and fix them. Analytics is in there too. Like, you know, with your background, I think it's just so important and it's so underrated and you can literally get any job in the world with those, with the, with one of those three backgrounds, because you can analytically, or, um, you can just, you can analyze problems and fix them because, and, and as you know, Adam, like that is like the core of any business. Like it's never a straight line. It's never easy. And you're constantly trying to solve problems and fix them. And so I look at it, I, I kind of look at it like that. So I, I know that was kind of a wandering conversation of like, kind of how I look at the world, but that's, that's how I kind of translated and, and went off. And then what was the second part of it? The second part was I, actually, actually before you, cause it kind of transitioned, it doesn't, it does transition to the second question, which is, you know, in your role as NFLPA president, yeah. you know, you're talking about solving problems and obviously having an analytical skill set. So is that something you specifically, you know, sought out or one reason it was attractive to you as a job and then that builds into the what was the second part of my earlier question was the ownership mindset and taking kind of ownership yeah. of, of data and monetization so, yeah so the the nflpa gig was really just about helping other players and i i i was attracted to it as a young player because i was more so than anything i was like why are why are the rules the way they are like why are why is this the way it is why is the salary cap the way this is and 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 then when i went to my first meeting you saw a lot of guys that you looked up to as a young player you know kevin mawise of the world the jeff saturdays of the world the drew Brees of the world you're like damn all of these guys are in this to help other players and so for me it was really just about that it was like I, it wasn't it wasn't something that I really sought out, at least as a, as a, as a, for the president thing, it was more of like, Hey guys, if, if you guys think I can help, that's fine. But that's why I'm doing this is I, I just want to help. I just want to help leave it a little bit better than I found it. And that's really at the end of the day, that's what a union's all about is just leaving it a little bit better than you found it and passing the baton. And, and hopefully the next guy passes the baton and leaves it a little bit better than found it. Then you have this incremental growth. Um, and so that for me was really kind of how I thought about the NFLPA gig. And as you know, I mean, we had all these off the field issues during my tenure that we had to figure out. Obviously, like I said, the CBA was a, it's a massive puzzle that you have to have to put in together that nobody's happy about. And, you know, like that's, that's part of it too. But during that time, and that was really something that spurred one team was, you know, we had a couple players that would stand up, especially on the business. And like, you know, we, we should think, like owners. And, and it wasn't necessarily, we need to go own something, but it was like, Hey, the owners look at business and, and they look at the, their teams as long-term projections and, and how can we maximize? And the, I think the good ones, at least, how can we maximize every single part of our business? Right. You look at Jerry Jones, you look at Robert Kraft, you look at some of the guys that do exceedingly well, they've built, you know, it's not just about selling hot dogs, suites and seats, right? It's, it's everything. It's the star. It's, you know, Robert Kraft owns the security company that does that, but they also go do everything else. You have legends hospitality. Who's now that's been 
enormous, right? But that started as the Cowboys and the Yankees doing food and beverage, right? Like some owners have been willing to think out of the box. And I, I actually tip my hat to both of those guys because you can, after you spend some time with them, you see like how they were really thinking of the world. And so I think our players saw that our player leadership said like, well, what else are we doing? And that, that sort of started spurring the conversation that led to one team really was more than anything was, Hey, how can we maximize fully maximize whatever we have? Right. And that's where we tried to kind of crack the code. And, and there's probably more. And again, like as I said, I still think there's plenty more juice left to squeeze and there's plenty more opportunities as technology changes and games change and cards change and everything changes. I still think there's plenty of opportunities um, to continue to maximize player value, but that's when you think about ownership and I think about ownership of, of that, you know, from the off the field standpoint, at least the non kind of non CBA stuff, that was really what sparked the idea in the first conversations about like, you know, what one team ended up being was, Hey, how can we maximize, you know, the owners maximize the revenue? How can, how can we do that too? Yeah. And that's one thing I, I do want to talk about one team because there's a couple of things in there. I want to make sure everybody understands in terms of what one team was and how it came together. But one of the things I did want to talk about, and this is something you highlight in your experience is your ability to negotiate. You mentioned some of those, you know, whether it's Robert Kraft or Jerry Jones, you know, obviously they're shrewd businessmen who have, you know, created multi-billion dollar empires and you're in a negotiating kind of situation negotiating against them and uh or against them uh, negotiating in the cba so what did you learn about you know bargaining negotiation um and how that whole process worked and how has that kind of helped you throughout your career as you've yeah. done from the nflpa it's funny you know people assume that these sessions and i mean there's hours of them like i mean it's just you can't even and they're not, you know, and I think players come in there thinking like, man, this is like game time. This is going to be super adversarial. And it's not. It, it really wasn't. There were only a few times where we kind of like the voices got raised a little bit. And, you know, it was like it was sort of storming off kind of thing. But that, those were like really few and far between. It was a lot of conversation. Like it was just about a lot of conversation about how two sides that quite frankly, like labor and management see the world and it doesn't really fit that well. Right. And, but it's a forced marriage. And so, you know, collective bargaining is super interesting, a lot, lot of issue, but, but it's, it's a little bit different than business bargaining because in business bargaining, you have one other option that you really don't have in collective bargaining is, well, we just don't have to do this deal. And collective bargaining, at some point, whether there's a strike, a lockout, whatever, there is going to be a time where you're going to have to do a deal, right? Like you're, the deal is going to be done at whatever leverage point you can get and that both sides feel like they've given and taken enough, right? And so from the, from the collective bargaining side, especially, you actually have less levers at time, I feel like, to play with than you do on the business side because it's it's hard to get super creative on some of this stuff. It really is like, is it, it, there's a lot of legacy systems that are still in place. And like, you know, you know, it, it's one of those things where, well, if we blank paged it today, maybe we would do things different, but it's like, we don't have a blank page guys. Like, you know, and you have to kind of keep some things going. So, um, so from that standpoint, it, but it, but it was, it was um, eye-opening in the sense of, and, and I had kind of known it because we'd bargained out some other stuff, but it is just a series of marathon conversations about, you know, what's best for us, what's best for them, where are possible areas to collaborate on, what are we going to agree on, what are we not going to agree on, where are the horse trades to be made, where are they not to be made, you know, those sort of things. And you, you start finding, you know, almost kind of parameters, right? Um and you you kind of figure it out off of those parameters and you're like okay well um you know we keep keep kind of you keep slugging at it you keep saying oh, okay well maybe we'd be willing to do this and you're like all right well then you keep going but something like that you know when it's a 400 page document that's you know meticulously gone over it's just marathon conversations and you just take bite-sized chunks and it's like the old adage like how do you need an elephant well you don't one bite at a time right and you just continue at it and you continue to 
um, do it. But but it, again, it also is a ton of communication with your own side, right? You're you're not bargaining on behalf of yourself. You're bargaining on behalf of 2,000 NFL players. Like there's a group of them bargaining on behalf of 32 owners. You know, so it's it's a lot of back and forth. And you know, like like any like any relationship, whether you agree or not, you do have to build some trust up, and you have to like. They have to understand that you're real and you have to understand that they're for real. And once you get there, like, you know, everyone starts trying to figure it out. And like, you know, you, you eventually get there. And and again, in the past, some, sometimes you haven't got there and there's a work stoppage. But again, you end up doing a deal at some point and you have to do the deal. But it is a... Um, but it's not as I, I guess for 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 anybody going back to the point, it's not nearly as acrimonious as you think, and it's much more conversation than you think. I think that's a good point. I think people, like you said, there's a stereotype of like there's a stare down. There's yeah, but like I, like you said, you're partners with the owners at, at the end of the day as players, and you need to yep. share revenues, and that, that's part of the insight. Um, that I wanted to share with the students is right. Like negotiations don't have to be adversarial by definition, right? They, there are times where they can be exactly what you said, but there's also times for agreement. And that uh, kind of leads to my next question in terms of building agreement uh, and it's sort of not silky segue again, but um, you mentioned obviously your partner um, with one team, Ahmad and Ahmad Nasser. And, you know, um, one of the things that uh, reason people are in our program is to build relationships, not only, with the professors, but with other students to potentially pursue, you know, lifetime networking opportunities and lifetime ability to potentially collaborate. So how did that relationship kind of build and grow with a mod where you guys, A, felt comfortable, you know, functionally, or I would say functionally being business partners at times, and then B, to decide to leave him, yeah. decide to leave the PA and you kind of starting to go down this entrepreneurial path of one team partners. Yeah, it's funny. Ahmad and I met, and we had met in early, we had met in like kind of 2009 when he first came over, didn't really know him well, but it was, um, again, it's, sometimes it's, things are fortuitous the way they work out and during the lockout. I was a young rep and one of these Smith's big things was, Hey, every meeting that's had with the NFL, there needs to be a player in it. Like no matter what it is, there need to be player representatives there. You know, his big thing is like, you guys are making the decision, not me. I'm kind of driving the boat, but you guys decide when we're going to dock this thing, right? And and so one part of the CBA, and it's it's not really part of the CBA, but it's an addendum to, is, is what's called a commercial agreement. And the commercial agreement basically dictates how a lot of the licensing and marketing relationships end up working between the NFL and the league and the, and the player marks. And we don't have to get too far into it because it's, it's kind of simple, but if you're not familiar with group licensing and marketing, it can get kind of wonky regardless that needed to be negotiated. And, but everybody, you know, like most of the guys were like, well, I know the CBA stuff. Like, I don't care about that stuff. And I was always sort of the guy that was interested in it. So like none of the players really wanted to go do that. And I was like, Oh, I'll go do that. And at the time it was, um, Aman Nassar was the, the general counsel, um, for the for players Inc for the business arm that was negotiating it along with the CEO. So, you know, I, I helped bargain out the commercial agreement, you know, I was kind of the player representative on that. And, you know, so that was my time though. I, I really got to know Ahmad and what's even funnier was on the other side, representing the NFL for that was Gary Gertzog, who is the longtime president of Fanatics and has been a long-term business partner of the PAs and of players ever since he left the NFL and went to Fanatics. And so again, you know, it goes to, we didn't always agree on things, but we actually built up a decent relationship bargaining. And, you know, there was some trust built up with Gary Gertzog. And since then we've done countless amount many deals with fanatics across all of the rights holders we've ever represented and he's always been a straight shooter and he'll tell you you know and again it's like trust is sometimes telling people like what you can't do and that's okay and and he's he's great about it he's always been a, a good partner and really um really good for the good for the pas quite frankly but yeah that's how i ended up getting into really the business side and, and getting to know him odd. And, and, and he, as he kind of rolled up and then ended up taking over as president of PI and our relationship just continued on because again, I was always interested in the business side and he knew me from, uh, and we knew each other from, uh, the, the, the 2011 CBA negotiations. 
And then one question that always comes to mind, um, kind of when you're starting one team, uh, before kind of the capital structure, which you mentioned is one of the central questions would be like you, you and Ahmad's obviously in yours, particularly backgrounds in the NFL. And you were looking at, you mentioned some of the other rights holders or the other athletes that you guys ended up representing. How do those conversations go when people would say, well, what do you know about my sports or what do you know about player representation or what do you know about union kind of considerations, considering that you're an NFL athlete and Ahmad obviously had multiple background, but obviously in part started because of his work at the NFLPA. And now you're trying to represent other leagues and unions. How did you guys decide that was something you wanted to do? And how did you get past maybe that initial kind of, well, you guys are NFL guys. Why should we trust you with our rights? <laughs> right. Um, I don't know how to answer that. So um, we, you know, I think my background and I think his background as just at the union, I think um, lended itself, I think, to some of that trust. Right. And I think lended itself to like, we're not some random PE guys and there's nothing wrong with PE guys. Again, my family's PE. Uh, but we're not, we're we're actually union people right and and like we come from this world we know your issues we know what um we know what's wrong and and we know like we can figure that out right and so we we knew how to talk we always say this we know how to speak union right and we we understand the pain points we understand the frustrations and so we were able i think to structure deals for them that 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 we understood the issues that they were experiencing on their business side, especially, and we were able to structure deals that appealed to them. And I think that was one of the secret unlocks also of one team was that like, and it was kind of our moat too, in a weird way, we'd laugh about it because like anybody else trying to figure out these deals with these unions, like there's no, it's, it's really difficult. Right. And there's a lot of legal hoops that they have to jump through and that we know it. So I think again, it goes back to, Hey, we knew them all. Like, so there's a lot of familiarity there. And then B, they knew our background, right? And then and then C, it was us really kind of understanding the issues that a lot of them were facing. And that kind of, again, it wasn't easy, but we still figured out, we kind of figured out how, okay, what's the best way to structure each specific deal for them? And going back to the original question, you mentioned capital partners, private equity, obviously Redbird was a partner of one team. Can you just... When you talk about being a capital partner, what does that literally mean? And private equity being involved in one team, what does that literally mean? And how did that come together so that you guys could have one team to start with? Um, so yeah, we, we one of our basis is um, one of our basis was always um, was like we wanted we wanted the PAs to be equity partners, owners of the business, right? Like, and, it, and some of it was small owners, and uh, some of it was, you know, like we can. It wasn't wasn't too big of a deal. Like we could we could figure it out, right? But it was for us. We always felt like, all right, let's um, if they if they're if they're owners of the business you know, they'll be all in and they, and they should own part of this. Right. We don't, we don't, we don't want them to feel like we were just an agency or that we were just, you know, renting or something like that. We want them to be all in. And, and I think there was just really important that one team from our point of view was union union majority owned. And it was, and it always was, and it still is. Right. And so I just felt like we, and we always just felt like that was part of our ethos was like, this is always going to be union owned to a certain degree. And it just brought along again, more, um, stamp of approval, if you will. Like there's almost like a, a signal to the rest of the other PAs that like, Hey, we, we really can't step out and do anything crazy, even if we wanted to, because the owners over here are the PAs. Right. And so like, why would we, why would we do that? And I think, I think again, when we were really thinking about it, that was, that was a part of it that I think was super appealing to a lot of the people that ended up coming off. And then, uh, how did you, how did Redbird and what's Redbird's involvement in terms of, of starting that up? And how did you guys, uh, how was that decided that private equity would be a good way path forward for, for one team? Um, so, you know, we talked to just a ton of people. Like, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people we talked to and, you know, Redbird, you know, talking to those guys, they were really a, a nice mix of what we thought 
we needed, you know, they, they brought a unique skill set there. They had done, you know, they were willing to kind of step out a little bit on a, on a risk adjusted basis, maybe that some others haven't. And not to say that was a super risky proposition starting one team because we had some steady business, but they, they knew what kind of support we needed. It wasn't like them just in the early days, throwing us some cash and, and putting this deal together and then see it later. Like, let us know, let us know how it did at the end of the quarter. They were, they were super helpful early, early on and just helping us think through issues, thinking through kind of what we need to do. Um, some of the really strategic negotiations that took place on some licenses, et cetera, early days that really kind of set us on our way. Um, and then obviously we built up the capabilities internally, like any company does. But I think, I think the initial attraction was them just kind of getting an understanding the PA rights and they had been around some of that stuff before and they understood some of the licensing business. Again, it's not super complicated, but it is different, right? It's like people understand what agents do. People understand kind of what commercials are, but you know, you look at the Madden video game and like what it takes to actually bring that to life. It is actually kind of complicated and, and, and it's very kind of wonky uh, of like how all that comes together and how your, your custody of rights need to move for it to be, um, to, for it to be good for all parties, especially for EA, the licensee who's going to make it. And, and so we brought a specific skill set. We think they brought a specific skill set and, and it ended up being a good relationship for a while. And, um, they do what PE firms do and there was nothing wrong. They, they left. And, and then I know one team's brought on, um, you know, another partner in HBS, uh, and kind of a consortium of, of sorts. And that's okay. Right. Like that's, that, that brings new ideas in that brings new, new thoughts and, um, a new vision. And, um, just like anything else too, you know, they brought in new leadership and they're going to do great. And I know those guys well, and, and, um, you know, they, I don't, you know, I, I think they're, I think they're, there's plenty ahead for them. Yeah. Um, Two questions that are kind of related here. Um, one is, you know, we talked a lot about group licensing rights and, you know, you said you don't want to get, which I understand, but I do think it's a little wonky and maybe like even just a summary explanation would be helpful. And it'd be interesting to apply it into the women's sports context, right? There's been a lot of investment and more specifically the past 12 to 18 months, but you guys were kind of, I would say earlier in the process than most. So can you explain kind of what group licensing rights kind of are, but in the context of like, what is the opportunity that you as already saw in women's sports that more and more people seem to be seeing now? Yeah. Um, so group rights, and again, it's, it's going to sound, I'm sure I made it out to be more than it is, but whatever. Um, it, it, group rights are essentially um, six in the NFL context, I'll use it. It's different number. It's a different threshold for everybody, but six or more players in a, in, in a specific product or a series of products that are depicted the same way. And no one is stands out more than the other. Right. And so again, the, the perfect two of the perfect, um, uh, use cases here are video games and trading cards. So a video game is and and I'll try to explain some of the value proposition for everybody. EA does not is not interested in doing 2000 individual deals to produce Madden. And that's what they'd have to do, right? Because people don't realize like, hey, if you see a billboard, you see someone's face on something that somebody's commercializing, like somebody's getting paid for that. That person is getting paid to use their name, image, and likeness. Everything that's going through college has been going on for like 30 years in the NFL and in, in, the, in professional sports. And so what what a licensee like ea wants a tops or panini want a fanatics wants is they want to do one deal and that gets all of what's called the passive rights and passive rights is again it's just name image and like this it's it literally means that the athlete is not doing anything for the product that would be activating the product but for the passive rights they're just granting the whomever it is, the licensee, their ability to use their name, image, and likeness on whatever product they're doing. So for an EA, they need 2,000 players to make that game. They can have Tom Brady, they can have Patrick Mahomes, but to make a video game around two people, as great of players they are, doesn't make any sense. And the headaches of going around and trying to get 2,000 individual deals is enormous right? You're dealing with 2000 agents, you're dealing with red lines, you're dealing with all of these legal 
issues there. You're dealing with different rates. This allows one royalty rate, right? And so a royalty rate is just at the end of the day, it's a rev share on sales to be passed to the NFLPA and then is distributed to the group. And, it, and it's kind of that simple. Um, along with that are these what's called GLAs, group licensing agreements that every player signs. And then that creates the right structure that is then bundled and then going out into licensee to license it out to market it, you know, in a passive sense. Uh, and then on top of it, you know, people might say, if you're kind of intuitive and you're thinking about this, you're like, well, what's the, why would Tom Brady get paid the same as Eric Winston? Like Tom Brady made makes way more difference of a game than, than he, and I would say you're right. But when an EA goes and wants to what's called activate the game, they want to put somebody on the cover. They want somebody to be in a commercial. Well, they're going to go talk to Tom Brady. Right. And if you don't have a group licensing structure, you actually miss out on all of this incremental revenue streams. Right. Because again, they're not going to do it. A great other example is we are coming out with the first set of professional tennis trading cards in July. Tennis. Don't get me wrong. There have been trading cards of tennis players before, but this is going to be a set where there's almost 400 players that are going to be involved. There's never been like this. It's been 15 players. This, well, you can't collect them, right? You can collect individual players, but you can't do what you can do in the leagues and other things. If you don't have a large amount, well, there's nobody else that can do that. Right. An agency as big as IMG is or octagon are like, well, they're not going to go get other players in other agencies. Like, of course they're not going to do that. So you need, you know, someone of an independent, you know, uh, company or like winners Alliance to go aggregate those rights and then go do a deal with a fanatics tops around trading cards. And so what we do and what I would tell anybody listening is group licensing kind of provides a incremental royalty or revenue stream to athletes that isn't there without them. Right. Like, because you can still go do all the individual deals you want, but again, when you're having to aggregate the rights of 400, 500, 2000 athletes, depending on the league size, licensees just like, dude, that's too much headache. I'm not doing that. Right. And, and then what happens is there's no product and then there's no fat heads and there's no Funkos and there's no, there's nothing else that comes out. And you're, and you wonder like, and if you really go over there in Europe and look at some of this, the, the lack of a right structure has really hurt their products and hurt like what is actually out there on the market. And I would tell you is, kind of somewhat, I wouldn't say like hurt the fandom of the game, but actually has hurt the commercialization of the game. And, and I think, I think there's still plenty of, um, plenty of chances for them to do stuff going forward, but it's, it's a much different experience here in North America than it is in other parts of the world, largely because of these right structures. That, a very good explanation of group licensing rights. Um, and then B, I just wanted to make sure we touched on the women's commercial rights and women's sports commercialization. Where did you guys see the opportunities there um, in, in terms of the ability to monetize and commercialize those rights? Are you talking about the U.S. Women's National Team or the NWSL or both? Both. It's funny. There is, um, there's two different, uh, you know, the U.S. Women's National Team is kind of an all-star team, right? And so, you know, they're in um, a lot of the, they, you know, in the FIFA game or used to be the old FIFA game. Now it's that EAFC game. You know, there's, you, you need to get those rights to license together with the, with the U S national team marks to play in the, the big tournaments, et cetera. Um, and so they were a little bit more of a specialized category. They're a little bit more seasonal, obviously, because you have Olympics, you have world cups every two years. So their business is a little different, but there's still a lot of business to be done. And it's, it's similar business. There's video games, trading cards, apparel, apparel is a big thing. Jerseys are huge on that soccer side, as you can imagine. They also do a decent business across consumer products. The NWSL is more, much more of a merging league, but it lends itself to a little bit more of the licensing categories because they're a league, right? It's, it's again, a lot of these people, like, you, yes, you, you, you tend to buy because of the stars, but you need the entire league to push this, right? I give you a great example. Again, that kind of comes back to, it's really hard to do trading cards of the U S women's national team. It's not hard to do trading cards for the NWSLP because you have, Again, you have, uh, you know, 150, 180 some players. And so you have the ability to now have sets, right? You have, you can have cards like, you know, with the U.S. Women's National Team, you have a pack, right? Like it's a, it's a little different. It's a different proposition. So 
that's I would say that's kind of the nuance of it is the the actually the more athletes across more teams is a little easier to monetize than sometimes even even though that like the u.s women's national team is an all-star team it can actually get harder to find deals because you're not providing them the expansive rights that they usually get and um i want to move a little bit to your current role um and your current position from there, you know, one of the things, part of the reason I want to talk about women's sports, I think people maybe have not the sense of NFL or major league baseball or MLB rights and how that works. Um, some of these more non-traditional sports from a union and commercialization perspective, um, both in terms of how they're structured and then the international kind of like what you were talking about from a European perspective, that's maybe a little bit more part of the pun foreign to, to people. So can you talk about the winner's alliance, how it came about and, and what do you see as the opportunity that's maybe a little bit different than what, what you guys were doing at one team partners? Yeah. You know, I, we always, you know, my, my original role at one team was kind of head of partnerships and that meant like all of the deals with the PAs and kind of overseeing their business, but not necessarily doing them. And then I moved, I did that and also took on a licensing role later on. And so I got, you know, a lot of experience. And, and the one thing I thing I saw was a huge opportunity on the international side, right? And I just thought like, and again, I mentioned that, like there, there hasn't been these right structures, there haven't been some of this that's done. And so I, I always say, you know, from a commercial standpoint, especially around licensing and consumer products, like, like the international sports are 25 years behind of where we are here, right? They're just it's so immature. And some of the stuff just hasn't been around because you haven't given licensees a chance to make products because no one's ever had the right. So they just kind of turn it down or they go do something else. And so when we left one team, we said, you know, be interesting if we just kind of pointed our guns internationally. And we only really thought about sports that are kind of global. And, and, and because there's a lot of nuance with that too, it's not the same products. Products might differ depending on, um, regions. Again, trading cards is actually a very innately North American thing, you know, in, in Europe or, or whatever they do sticker books and things like that. It's a similar idea, but it's a different product. Right. And so, you know, you can't just say, Oh, I'm going to go license trading cards. And you, you, you got to think about kind of where, the value proposition, et cetera, is so would we, you know, so when we dig in this, we say, okay, we want to go and really point our, our, our mass out towards the international side. And, and so for us, tennis was like a perfect way to start of like, man, talk about biting off something that is completely different, an individual sport that's with a new union, that's trying to be collectivized the whole thing. And you know, it was, it still is, it's like really rolling up your sleeves, trying to figure this out, but that's where kind of tennis just was, was like the opportunity to, to start this. And then I said, Hey, listen, I think this cricket thing is like a big idea. And, and a lot of men, those people, and we're talking to them already and we were able to get that done. And they, they've actually done the hard work of, of again, getting their rights, right. And doing some of the things that some other international folks haven't. So from from this to, from our standpoint, we just look at it like as we're not, you know, I never compare us to one team because one team is a kind of a domestic focused um, long-term rights holder of these PAs. Like if anything, like sort of like kind of collaborators or something like that on the other side of this, like, well, we're kind of doing some stuff that is much more international focused and not domestically focused. And want to be and want to do things again. And, and I mentioned this earlier in the thing, I, I do think, you know, one team is very licensing focused, which is totally fine. It's a, it's a good business. I do think in two, three years, licensing will just be a pillar of what we do, but not everything of what we do. So th those are a few of the differences there. Again, that's not hope if nobody, if somebody from one team is listening to this, I'm not like throwing shade on them or anything like this. I just, that's just kind of how we look at the world. And we're just kind of thinking like, Hey, I think international is just like a, a really cool and interesting uh, problem to try to crack. Can you talk a little bit more about the, I mean, you mentioned the cricket thing, just like what that means in a little bit more detail. I think it's a really interesting opportunity and a really novel kind of idea that you guys have brought to the marketplace. Yeah, so the Federation, so most union structures outside the United States, again, this, there's even different union structures. And so each sport is unionized per country. So in in like England, per se, the PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, 
represents every professional soccer player in England. So everybody from the Premier League all the way down to like the fifth level, making like 20 grand, right? So they represent everybody. It'd be like the NFLPA representing the NFL, the, the you know, the what are they calling it now? The UFL, is that the Spring League? You know, so UFL represent, if college, if college football players were uh, unionized, if high school players were, you know, like all the way down. And then what, what ends up happening is, is each country, you know, so for cricket, each country has their own union. Like, you know, so there's an England union, there's an Australian union, there's a South African. Then they end up having this like kind of umbrella body is what I would call it. And in cricket, it's called the Federation of International Cricketers. And there's not as many countries as the one in soccer, but it's, you know, 13, 15 uh, countries. And they're organizing, obviously, more and more uh, as we speak. And what they did is they they got their rights together because they realized it's like, well, it's the same kind of conundrum. We're like, you know, uh, someone might want to come do trading cards. Well, it's like, okay, so I got to go do a deal with England. Then I got to turn around and go do Australia, but then I don't get the players. And like, how do I put it together? And again, it doesn't sound that complicated, but once you start getting into the middle of this, again, it's a, it's enough to chase a licensee away because what they're saying, they're like, well, maybe if this doesn't turn out to be a big opportunity, this is a huge waste of time for us. And like, we just don't have the resources to spend on this to figure this out. And so that's really kind of some of our value proposition is a, we, we kind of understand and know the markets for some of these people and B like, we're able to, we're able to simplify it for the licensees and create a value proposition that makes sense to them. So we're getting towards the end of the time and there's a lot more on the bone here that I'd like to have. So hopefully, as I usually say with all the guests, we'd hopefully have you back for yeah. a future conversation. But two final questions as we're getting towards the end of the time. Uh, one is about entrepreneurship. You know, cut is obviously, as you mentioned, in terms of starting companies and something obviously I've done. Uh, but um, from your perspective, what appeals to you about entrepreneurial ventures? You know, you could have worked at an investment bank. You could have worked at consulting you decided to work at more entrepreneurial type ventures. What's been appealing to you and why did you decide to go more of the entrepreneurial route than more of a traditional kind of finance consulting uh, banking route? That's a good question. Uh, for me, it was always about, you know, I didn't know what I, I, I did not set out to be in sports business like that. I, I, I wanted to be in business and I was actually very interested. I've always I'll gnaw someone's ear off. Like, how'd you start that you know insurance company or how'd you start the whatever company and like, you know, what'd you do? And like, where was it? So always just interested in hearing people's stories, but I realized and, and when, when I was kind of figuring it out after I was in grad school and I'm figuring it out after the NFL and kind of, you know, very pre one team before that it was, you know, I got some good advice and it's like, stop thinking about what, you know, do you want to be at an insurance company? Do you want to be at a PE firm? Think about what kind of company you want to be at. Right. Like, do you want to be at a large corporation? There's a great things about a large corporation, like, you know, the, the work life balance, the whole thing. Do you want to be at a small firm? Do you want to be at a medium firm? And what I realized is that my whole life, the scoreboards mattered. And 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 I've always looked for the, to the scoreboard to provide some sort of feedback of like, am I doing good or bad? Right. And and so for me, it was really important and, and I wanted to be in a place where I knew I was affecting the scoreboard and, and I knew that if I wasn't doing well, I was going to notice. And then when I was doing well, I would notice. Right. And so that is how I kind of always thought about like where I wanted to be. And so when I, I knew I was like, okay, well, I want to be in a, you know, a mid to small stage company where you know, we know at the end of every week, quarter, whatever, are we are we winning or are we losing? Right? Are we are we doing well? Or are we not doing well? And and so for me, that's that's where I started thinking about. Okay, I want to go to a smaller company. And then when the one team opportunity came up and and we kind of created it, that's why I went there. But it wasn't. But but I, you know, you kind of needed to know that going in and be okay with that. But yeah, that's for me that's how I always thought about it. it wasn't necessarily by sector. It was more about that early stage because I just, I wanted to be somewhere where you knew that like what you're doing is moving the needle. And if you're not, then okay, great. Let's go problem solve that and figure that out. But like, I just felt like going to a big company. It's like, how do you know you're even doing a good job? Unless, you know, your boss might tell you that, but like, 
you know, what are you, the stock price went up a cent, but there's, you know, there's 10,000 workers here or a thousand workers here. And like, you don't know like what you're really doing affects anything. And so that's, that's kind of why I kind of chose sort of the startup slash life. And then it's funny because one team was a startup, but we had some recurring revenue with some, with, with the way we structured the company and the licenses that came over with winners. It's, it's like a real startup. <laughs> it's a, we're, we're having to go find some stuff we can kill and go do that, which is, which is great. And I've, it's been super invigorating and I've really liked it. And final question, which we ask all of our guests going from what kind of company you want to work, uh, what kind of company you want to work at to who you want to work with. So when you look for people that you're hiring, you know, you're obviously the president, you're in a senior position, as you described yourself a quasi sports executive, uh, what, what kind of people are you looking to hire and what kind of kind of quality stand out for you as you're looking to build your team? Yeah. Like I said, like super coachable people, people who aren't looking at the clock, people who want to learn and they want to be coached and they want feedback and they want honest feedback. And that's really, you know, it's, I, I go back to that athlete, athlete mentality of like, I want to get better. And the only way to get better is to know what I'm messing up and, 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 and know what I'm doing good at. And so I've always taken that approach with people like, uh, I don't care if you've really played sports or not, but like, I want you to have that mentality of like, I'm going to coach you hard and I'm going to expect a lot out of you. And we don't have a business as a, as a young business. Like we don't have nine to five. Like it's, we, we might, you might be able to cut off at one o'clock and there's going to be days where we might be working at nine o'clock. Right. And like, if you're not into that and I tell people up front, if you're not into that, like this place is not for you. Like it's totally okay. But this place is not for you. I, I don't hoodwink people. I don't like tell them something. It's not like I tell them straight up, like, Hey man, like, you know, this is, this is what it is. And we go, we, we run fast and we're going to break stuff and that's okay. And, but that's the appeal. And like, I, because that's going to naturally attract the right people. And I'm, I'm always very upfront and honest with them, but more so than anything, just people that want to like get after it and they want to learn and they want to, they want to, they want to, they want to be a part of something that's going to grow and, and that, you know, that you're going to be on a kind of a cutting edge of. Yeah, I think that's a, a good place to leave it. I think obviously being able to digest it and move with feedback and critical feedback is something that's important, regardless of what uh, position or company you're in, but obviously particularly important from an entrepreneurial perspective. So, yeah. Eric, I appreciate the time. Thanks yeah, for joining the Revenue Above. Uh, it was great to talk to you, and th thanks for joining the show.